0: think everybody most likely knows if they want to invest in you in the first call itself uh, after that they're just reasoning it out for themselves hmm. I remember during our last conversation so that comes back to saying if you hit as many doors hmm. then this will end up getting triggered at some point got it because it's just that it seems like you know uh, you're talking to like instead of talking to 100 people talk to 1000 people the probability of somebody going ahead and liking you in the first hour is much higher and then they will be constantly working at convincing themselves.
1: That was Kabir Biswas, the co-founder and CEO of Dunzo.
2: Me and my brother, we used to go into a, a small pond, get the copies, put it in a bottle, allow them to grow, and then actually sell it for, I think, 10 paisa each. <laughs> so that was our first brush to entrepreneurship. And I think... It was fun. It told you that if customers exist then there's value to be created and pretty much beyond that life's always
1: been I've been an entrepreneur all my life. That was Bhaskar Subramanian the co-founder and CEO of Amagi. So I'm 100% sure because
3: I know most VCs today and I kind of know how they think. Um, I, I, I mean I'm extremely proud about what we stand for the, as a business today, and uh, and when I look back, it isn't really the money, etc. That you know, and I, I they say I, is my takeaway from my life. Of zero. Luck. So it's just what we stand for as a business, and that wouldn't have been possible if if we had gone to a professional VC and raised some money, and then had the pressure of growing year on year, year on year. And I mean. It would have been impossible to build a Zeroda type of a business. We could have still built a large business, you know, a large profitable list. And I'm sure by now we would have enlisted and all of that if there was a VC, you know,
1: in the the beginning. That was Nitin Kamath, the co-founder and CEO
4: of Zeroda. I fretted too much on success. Too much about success to begin with. I don't do that anymore. Uh, But I fretted too much about, like, being successful... You know, being better than the other company around me, etc., etc., etc. This is not a game of competition. This is um, this is a thing about generational. So you can be fast or slow; it doesn't really matter. If you do it rightly, you will create gigantic impact in the world. Uh, who cares about three, four years here and there in this whole picture? Uh, so. I think we are being, we become very myopic with time as a factor uh, because the world of startups is driven by venture capitalists who have a life cycle of seven years. So we think in those, uh, you know, seven to 10 year life cycle, but for people who are building good companies, you don't have to do that.
1: That was Naveen Tiwari, the co-founder and CEO of Inmobi.
5: I think you're alone. I mean, you can't share your fears, your anxieties, um, certainly with the chem. Um, I'm just joking. But I think you can't share it with your investors. Uh, you can't share it with even your top team in many ways, right? Because, you know, you a lot of the startup is about creating. I mean, it's about impossible odds. I mean, if you look at any stats, it's impossible odds, right? And therefore, it's very lonely. And that builds up in terms of stress, right? You don't have somebody to talk to. That was Anant Narayanan, the co-founder and
1: CEO of Mensa Brands. I know, if this isn't the first time you're listening to First Principles, you're probably wondering what's going on. Why did we have five different founders opening the episode instead of just one? It's because today's is a special episode. We went back to the first five episodes we did, which were with as by now you would have guessed Kabir, Bhaskar, Nitin, Naveen and Anand. I'm Rohan Dharmakumar, your host. We compiled some of the most interesting, original and often counterintuitive conversations from these accomplished founders. While I'd urge you to listen to each of their conversations in full, This episode is a good place if you took to first principles recently and are still searching for reasons to listen to older episodes. Today's episode is a good reason. We'll begin with Kabir Biswas, the co-founder and CEO of Dunzo, the cult-like instant delivery service that started from Bangalore. He talks about the 10,000 plus tasks he's personally run on Dunzo, the impossible grind of fundraising, how founders' traits tend to show up as organizations' culture, and many more things. Let's hear Kabir. I'm going to take you back to when you started Dunzo and ask you, why did you start Dunzo? Oh, my reason to start
0: Duns was extremely personal. I just think that something like this should exist. Um, I am somebody who was, uh, I'm a child of convenience, if that's the way to put it. Um, I I remember when Uber launched in San Francisco. When I read it, I was amazed by what it could do. I was like, you press a button and a cab comes, right? Uh, And then I remember I used to be in Gurgaon. And then when it launched in Bangalore, um, I actually came down to Bangalore to try it out. Uh, this, of course, they were doing BMWs and Mercedes and stuff. Um, and I think that's one of the really large innovations on the mobile internet that not enough people give credit to. At the end of the day, the whole idea of what you call making location-based information and dispatch algorithms real-time. That's what it is, right? That's what everybody is building on top of. Uh, food delivery builds on top of that. Consumables delivery builds on top of that. Um, everybody's building on top of those couple of what you call innovations that Uber did, um, and so once I tried that out, I was like, "Oh, this is great! Uh, can you actually press a button and get everything else done?" Um, and that was really a one-line insight that, I'll be honest, like didn't leave me for like 18 months. Um, I used to keep thinking about it. I was like, "Yeah," and every time I used to do something on a Saturday Sunday, and I think I'm fundamentally lazy, um, so on a Saturday Sunday, I would be like, "There should be something that can solve my life's problems." And I think there are two or three things that we keep very close to ourselves culturally. One is we're very honest, we're very humble, um, and we're constantly curious, uh, right? Uh, those are three things that uh, what you call, um, I think I have, and honestly, again, the founder CEO role also determines the fact that, you know, your cultural traits tend to show up in the organization's cultural traits. Um, so I think those are the three things that we over-index on and the organization tends to go ahead and reward also. Um, it allows us to make sure that by building companies is really hard. Um, so if you can have those three things as the cornerstone of your conversation, um, at least the bullshit from your conversation is gone. right? You're honest, you're humble, and you'll constantly be curious. So one of the one of the funnest moments nowadays that I have is, um, is so you know, in the morning hours, uh, like usually on a cycle route, I will go stop at one of the warehouses. Um, and orders start in at like 6.30 odd, right? Um, and so you just stand over there and you know, uh, you look at a cart and here so there is no way to even know, uh, right? Um, and just try and figure out what shopping mission was this, right? Like what need would have been created for somebody to buy 12 packets of milk and four packets of Mari biscuit? That's it. That was the cart, right? Um, and I'm wondering, hmm, I, I, I can't come up with it. I started meditating a lot more, uh, right, Um, and uh, it's been very helpful over the last 18 months. Uh, I started off with like two, three minutes, but I'm at about 20, Um, and just by doing it and not giving up. um, I think if I can convince myself, um, and this is something that that I'm just amazed by in general, uh, by the capability of what the human mind is, well, possible, uh, it can do, right? Um, If you can convince yourself that it is good for you um, and if you can apply yourself, I potentially believe actually nothing's impossible. Um, You can get to the 95th percentile fairly easily. Between the 95th and the 99th percentile, of course, you'll have to then dedicate more time. Uh, But you can get 95th percentile good enough for most things in life if you're willing to apply yourself. I heard this very interesting talk once which was about procrastinators. Um, And I think I'm a serial procrastinator at some level. Um, I tend to subconsciously chew on a particular topic for a really long period of time and then when the time comes um, we'll execute on it in the last 48 hours Uh, I didn't realize this about myself uh, till a really I think up till about 18 months back 24 months back when, when I think I was talking about it or reading about it but if I do I do this right like I've had three weeks to do this and I'm still doing this in the last 72 hours um, and it's not about urgent over important and stuff, none of that. Um, but what it did was the quality of work that I was putting out three weeks before something versus three days before something was substantially different.
1: What part of your job do you wish you didn't have to do? <laughs> fundraising. <laughs> Great. Uh, on that question, um, what is one counterintuitive piece of wisdom about fundraising you'd like to share with entrepreneurs? you got to hit as many doors as you can.
0: Uh, not very counterintuitive. But I will be. I think everybody most likely knows if they want to invest in you in the first call itself. Um, after that, they're just reasoning it out for themselves.
4: Hmm.
1: I remember during our last
0: conversation. So that comes back to saying if you hit as many doors, hmm. then this will end up getting triggered at some point. Got it. Because it's just that. It seems like, you know, uh, you're talking to like, instead of talking to 100 people, talk to 1000 people. The probability of somebody going ahead and liking you in the first hour is much higher. And then they will be constantly working at convincing themselves. So um, I actually talk about this also. One of the things that I think has been the biggest uh, uh, loss uh, has been reading in my life. Uh, it's, I, would, uh, I grew up as a single kid uh, right, in a small little town in India called Silvassa. It's a union territory of Dadra and Nagaravali. It's capital. Um, We got internet also very late, I'll be honest. Um, So, as a very young 12, 13 year old, we had about a thousand books at home. Um, And it was, and a single kid. So, it was like the go-to thing to do, uh, to just read. Um, And I think over the last five years of actually, four, five years of doing Dundra, I think that's been like a big loss. Um, We don't find as much time. Um, I would happily just read and like, and I've also now discovered a new thing Which I'm so happy about I've gone ahead and uh, Split Two habits One is the habit of buying books uh, Is a hobby And the what you call uh, To read books is another hobby And I have stopped connecting both of them So I'm like I will buy as many books as I want <laughs> Right? Without feeling the guilt that I have to read everything immediately And then I will read whatever I can
1: Whenever I can find the time The link to Kabir's full conversation is in the show notes. Incidentally, that was also our very first episode. Next, we have Bhaskar Subramanian, the co-founder and CEO of Amagi, the most unlikely of unicorns to emerge from India. It is a media technology company that enables virtually the entire video production and distribution chain for all sorts of media companies globally. Glass-to-glass solutions is how Amagi describes itself, implying its presence from the glass of the camera where video is being shot to the glass of the screen on which it is finally watched. Bhaskar dropped out of his master's program at IIT Bombay because he found it oriented around getting grades, not necessarily learning. He talks about why entrepreneurship is like a drug for him why vulnerability is a core value at Amagi, why a CEO's job is to be a clock builder and not a timekeeper, and many more things. Let's listen to Bhaskar.
2: Uh, My CFO, who's kind of an elderly gentleman, called up and said, hey Bhaskar, we cannot pay the money for this. This month we don't have the salaries. (laughs) What do we do? I know a gentleman called N.S. Raghavan. He was the co-founder. Of he had just retired in 2000. Why didn't we go meet him? So the next day, it was just on 25th of that month, I remember. We went to went to meet him. And I gave him a lot of mumbo-jumbo about how Bluetooth and wireless and multimedia is going to change the world and all of that. He listened to it about 45 minutes and said, Bhaskar, I don't understand a thing of what you're speaking. But I can tell you, you folks are passionate. So tell me what do you need, is what he asked me. I don't think I was prepared for that question of tell me what you need. So the largest number I can think of is uh, 2 crores. I said, I need 2 crores. Then he called somebody and actually wrote a check in front of me, gave it to me. That is kind of a completely surprising moment. I don't think I ever expected somebody to write a 2 crore check uh, immediately to an unknown person, completely out of the blue. And I asked him, what's the terms? And all. he said, don't worry about all of that. We'll, we'll discuss later. Go solve your salary problem right now. Just continue, then we'll talk about it. I think that changed the way of trust levels that people could have on completely different individuals and how how he saw entrepreneurship. I think truly that that was a big changing moment. And in fact, when we started Amagi, and the first check came from from NS, NS raghavan So they wrote a 12 crore check without having a business plan. Literally, there's nothing. They said, we trust you. Just go ahead and do it. I remember the first venture capital was Mayfield Series A fund that we're doing. A week before series, term sheets had come in from uh, from Mayfield and Mayfield told us, hey, can you give us the term sheets for, the, for the, the 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 final documents for the last round? And he said, I didn't have anything. And we had 25 crores invested by NS Raghun and not a single pa- piece of paper between us. What- so essentially, just going back, uh, I did my first business uh, selling uh, small cuppies, or called fishes, <laughs> uh, when I was in my school days. So that's my first <laughs> stretch into kind of getting into entrepreneurship to some extent, right? So that stint was about my, me and my brother. We used to go into a, a small pond, get the cuppies, put it in a bottle allow them to grow, and then actually sell it for, I think, 10 paisa each. <laughs> so that was our first brush to entrepreneurship. And I think it was fun. It told you that if customers exist, then there's value to be created. And uh, pretty much beyond that, life's always been, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. So never been in a corporate setup. Is about two years is what some total that I want. So to that extent, for What's, me. You, you said it's a drug. What's the high that it gives you? I guess I do not know of any other profession that I can think of that I can actually do. Technically, if, if, if people allow me to say, okay, tomorrow, get out of Amagi, maybe I have to do something else. I would rather go back and do something else again. Uh, I don't think I I know how to work in a setup, in a corporate or in any environments, because I've not learned to do that. And that that's just been the journey. So I, I don't know what the other side is, technically, to tell you whether this is the high, because because this is the only thing I know, literally. <laughs>
1: No, uh, I'd like to come back to this correct, later. Right, right. I, for now, I'd like to switch back yeah. to a little bit about you. Yeah, um, There's a lot of interesting stuff about you uh, from our earlier conversations, from our research. One of them is that you dropped out of your master's degree at IIT Bombay. Correct. Why?
2: uh why uh, largely again again that that leads lot slightly more history <laughs> as well in some sense right see I've been a self-learner all my life so never thought college map in fact and I'll come to some of my <laughs> personal stories right now but again I never thought college is something that's interesting to start with but when and computer science was my first love so software was the first love that I had so pretty much I've been reading a lot more and obviously Bill Gates was your hero Bill Gates was my hero, actually, to start with. So was reading a lot of things. And then uh, ma- I got an opportunity in master's. Then I went to IIT Bombay. Technically, I said, hey, this is something, that let's learn something new from professors is what I went in. Unfortunately, the whole community of, uh, again, master's, and I hope that's changed in the country, were people who were looking to do grades. So they were all looking at professors who would give them an A or a B grade. And there were good courses where there was nobody attending those courses because professors actually were very harsh in terms of grades. For me, it didn't matter. Actually, I was there to learn. And for me, didn't have a choice. Then I went to the professor. The professor said, you know what? I cannot take your courses because you're the only one person. We cannot do it. At least I need three people. And I couldn't really convince any of my classmates there because everybody is looking for a career. And for them, grades mattered. It didn't matter to me. I just got frustrated. So I just packed my bags and called my dad and said, I'm going to come back. And I just came back. (laughs) Multiple ways, actually. One of the things, I think, few few things which have kind of solidly stuck in my mind from, from my childhood days, which I think even today continues, is the ability to be what I call, and again, this is a core value in our company, is what we call as vulnerability. Vulnerability is a core value in our company.
1: That's fascinating. Vulnerability is a core, core value, value of for a company.
2: Yes, correct. And vulnerability is obviously, a, in English, it's, it means weakness. But in our stuff, it's, it's one of the biggest strengths. And the way it happens is we expect everybody in the company to feel extremely comfortable talking about mistakes, talking about, hey, this is not the way we want to do it. We made a mistake. We're going to go back, relook at it and come back. We wanted people to feel as comfortable as they would do with their family members to some extent. That comfort and honesty is super important for us. In fact, we don't want anybody to be guarded in the company. We tell them exactly the way it is we're not going to be judging each other through these conversations and kind of keep it very, very open. So that's made a big difference for us as a company. And again, from the early days, everybody in the co- company understands that they can be very, very comfortable and open about conversations. Nobody's going to get judged. And uh, there are times when I, I, I kind of tell people, right, I've gone into meetings where my team will say, Basket, don't come in. You're not going to add any value today, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> I can actually go back to my work and yet feel comfortable because all of us have that s- advantage of being frank about each other and being comfortable about it. I think that's a su- super important capability, which came from my family. When I started, I think one of the things at home we were taught, literally, is saying, hey, feel comfortable about yourself, who you are. Is is just be you originally you, and in fact all our lives we kind of practice that as a as an important aspect. But. It's really the understanding of conceptually being able to build things, right? Depending on the co- job competency they are in. In fact, we do prefer people outside the industry. In fact, a lot of the people that we hire are people who are not in the industry because. For me, you were
1: outsiders. I, as well. We were
2: we were outsiders. We could learn through the whole thing, and there was no good reason why we cannot uh, get everybody else to learn through. So learnability is important. Problem solving is important, and then the foundational, fundamental first principles of whatever they've done. So in fact, we in fact, I remember getting into a meeting, and somebody who had, I think, chemical engineering or something they've done. So we t- started talking about chemical engineering and core aspects. What did they love about their courses? It was nothing to do with what we did. But if you know foundational elements, you know how to solve problems in life, and you're curious about new things and you know how to learn, that's all the three things you need. Okay, so just to give you, let me give you two stories, which I think is very important to understand. So this is a person that's influenced me in my life in terms of how I see the perspective of things, right? I remember 2000 um, in ImpulseSoft, which is our first company. We were all of about 27, 28. We were kind of uh, struggling, no venture capital in those days, and uh, we were trying to meet our cash flows. Uh, my CFO, who's kind of an elderly gentleman, called up and said, "Hey, Bhaskar, we cannot pay the money for this this month. We don't have the salaries. <laughs> what do we do?" I know a gentleman called NS Raghavan. He was the co-founder. Of the he had just retired in 2000. Why didn't we go meet him? So the next day, it was just on 25th of that month, I remember, we went to went to meet him, and I gave him a lot of mumbo jumbo about how Bluetooth and wireless and multimedia is going to change the world and all of that. He listened to it about 45 minutes and said, Bhaskar, I don't understand a thing of what you're speaking." But I can tell you, you folks are passionate. So tell me what do you need, is what he asked me. I don't think I was prepared for that question of, tell me what you need. So the largest number I can think of is two crores. I said, I need two crores. Then he called somebody and actually wrote a check in front of me, gave it to me. That is kind of a completely surprising moment. I don't think I ever expected somebody to write a two crore check uh, immediately to an unknown person, completely out of the blue. And I asked him what's the terms and all. That. He said, "Don't worry about all of that. We'll we'll discuss later. Go solve your salary problem right now. Just continue. Then we'll talk about it." I think that changed the way of trust levels that people could have on completely different individuals and how how he saw entrepreneurship. I think truly that that was a big changing moment. And in fact, when we started Amagi, and the first check came from from. NS, NS So they wrote a 12 crore check without having a business plan. Literally, there's nothing. They said, we trust you. Just go ahead and do it. I remember the first venture capital was Mayfield Series A fund that we we're doing. A week before Series A, term sheets had come in from uh, from Mayfield. And Mayfield told us, hey, can you give us the term sheets for the the, the, the the final documents for the last round? And he said, I didn't have anything. And we had 25 crores invested by NS Raghun and not a single pa- piece of paper between us. What- Absolutely. Right. So one of the core elements, I think, from good to great uh, from Jim Collins, the one of the only tenets that we picked up, and again, even today I'm trying to practice that is really timekeepers versus clock builders. The core concept is fairly straightforward. A timekeeper is somebody who's wearing a watch and anybody who wants time, they know how to look at the watch and tell you the time. A clock builder is building a clock, setting it on the wall, and then pretty much everybody can see time on the clock rather than actually talking to them. The idea of Amagi and where we are, and this is something that I talk to our teams, is we are trying to build it for the next 25, 30 years, beyond all of us, beyond us, at least for surely as founders. I don't think we want to be the the crutch, if you will, for the company at any point of time. So in that context, we're trying to build an institution of sorts. So for me, the core value systems matter. We're not trying to build a corporation. It's an institution for us, right, in terms of building that value set. We don't even know whether we'll be in the media business or otherwise because things will change, things will move. Can we build the foundational tenets of why this organization exists? What's the purpose of this organization? Put a cadence of creation of innovation and put the right sort of people, culture, and value systems in the framework, the backbone of the company, and let it loose. It should just continue to grow. There is no reason for a founder to exist in the middle of all of this. So we see ourselves as more of custodians of these value systems to be able to transfer it and adequate amount of transfer, and and then the company can actually go on on organically. Beyond this, I think we don't need to exist, fundamentally.
1: That was actually my next question, because many organizations have this cultural awe of founders. Like, What do the founders think? What is the founder's view, etc. and stuff. So my question was, does that exist at Amagi? The uh, okay, think?
2: I wouldn't call it, it does not exist, but it is clearly a questionable things in some sense in our company, right? One of the things we tell people is question and confront everybody, including all of us confront each other first and we enable others to confront each of us, right? So that it keeps the conversations and discussions going to the root of the problems rather than a view of saying, oh, this is the founder's aspect of things, right? In a company like ours, we have what's called the yin and yang of the whole system. The core element is the value system I talked about. The vulnerability, respect for others and being yourself and all of that, that's the core element. That we don't want to change. Everything else is flexible. There is not a single person in our company, we we change structures, we change organizations, we change our own views of things. And I tell people we will change very, you know, possibly earlier than what you could think. And we change not because we don't hold any egos to that decisions as much as saying, hey, if it's the right decision to make or in that particular time point in time that looks the right way to do it, We'll just go continue to change. So we' kind of starting to train the organization saying, hey, don't don't take my decision too seriously because we will change <laughs> to some extent.
1: What is it that you've learned the hard way about fundraising that you'd like to tell other entrepreneurs or founders?
2: No, the biggest realization, again, again, uh, again, it's also about maturity, I guess, in terms of thinking is I started seeing our investors themselves as a business. They are a business in themselves. They are in the business of raising money and spending money on things which actually make money back to them. The moment that perspective came in, the conversations that I have with our investors right now is very different because I treat them as another entrepreneur of, of a fashion rather than as somebody is going to put the money and we're going to take the money because that is not a transaction. It is a relationship that we build there, Right. So this maturity helps a lot because our own... So my conversation with investors is, hey, what are the expectations out of this whole thing? Because you are investing money in the company. What do you think is the end goal which will make you successful? Which is much more of a mature conversation to have and because the, and most investors, and again, a lot of the investors, including our current investors, open up and say, hey, this is my expectations, Baska. This is what I'm modeling. In fact, I work with them to help them model worst case and best case and, uh, scenarios for them to present how they should present our own company. And given the vulnerability part, which I actually extend to my board as well. In fact, I do a write-up for any of our investors joining us with an FAQ of how we will behave with them. So that's my first uh, mail that goes to my board, right? So as part of it, vulnerability again, we say, hey, we want to be vulnerable to you. So don't be judging us every day because you're not going to get anything. Because I'm going to tell you what's not working, what we don't know, what we're failing at. And uh, that's the way we are. So you're not going to you're going to get a completely unadulterated view of the company, and you can choose and to judge us, but <laughs> that won't help you after you put the money to that extent. These were the two biggest learnings for me: being comfortable about your failures and helping them to kind of be part of that whole journey is important. Second, treat them as a business. Treat them as as not as an investor versus an entrepreneur conversation, but an entrepreneur-entrepreneur conversation where there are. Expectations, there are things that they need to accomplish and get get their jobs done. How do we kind of help them through the process? I think those two have helped a lot. Parenting has taught me how, um, I think, patience for all of us, I guess. that's a universal (laughs) lesson for all of us. That's a universal lesson that all of us learn. Uh, One of the biggest learnings for me is not to apply your mirror image on your child. I think uh, that's a very conscious aspect expectations on of us on our children is has been a big, big learning journey, right? Again, all of us tend to do that. We think an extension of ourselves to some extent, cutting that umbilical cord to some extent and treating them as an individual with their own ideas, values, arguments and conversations and beliefs. Uh, in fact, I go to an extent where I've told my children, you can choose your religion, you can choose whatever you want to believe in and keep that sort of comfort and then doing it. I think it took us some time to get to the maturity of that, right?
1: If you want to queue up the full Bhaskar episode, the link is in the show notes. Coming up next is Nitin Kamath, the co-founder and CEO of Zerodha, India's largest online brokerage. He doesn't believe in setting targets or goals for his companies or employees. He's also one of those rare Bangalore founders who have succeeded at scale without taking a single dollar of venture capital. No, in fact, Nitin insists Zerodha's success is partly due to avoiding venture capital. From his anonymous days as Nathan Hawke, Tarzan or Columbus at a call center or at an internet forum, to running one of the most profitable and yet leanest startups in India, Nathan covers a lot of ground. He talks about thinking like a trader, running a company with zero attrition, creating optionality and many more things. Let's listen to Nathan.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I have with time kind of, you know, uh, started acknowledging that all of that is hocus pocus, you know, so life's all about, business life is all about right place, right time. I mean, you will grow as much as you can grow and, you know, these targets and setting goals, et cetera, it's, you know, it's kind of useless, you know, so, uh, and, and that's how I think, you know, the business has also evolved over the last 10, 12 years.
1: A value Zerodha of 2022? That's right. How would you value it? What metrics would you look at? How would you arrive at a
3: valuation? I'm an insider. As in, if, if I was a VC knowing everything that I know,
1: I wouldn't value as much as what people think is a value of Zerodha, you know? So, because we are a... All right. discount the insider information. The information that you share externally, No, externally, customers.
3: right now, you know, we are very, very, very valuable. I mean, I've I've gotten...
1: I'm right. going to
3: press you... <laughs> i got a blank check offers to get stake in the business, you know, and you know, people have told me, go buy an island, buy a, you know, plane and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it's just, you know, we're in the top of the bull market and stockbrokers historically have been most valuable at the top of the bull market. So, so yeah, so if, if I was an external, you know, person who had no kind of insider knowledge about the industry, um, I don't know. I mean, an ICSA direct is at $3
1: billion. And I would say at least twice of that. Okay, six billion dollars for what you thought would one day be a comfortable lifestyle business, and that's that's a great way for us to start our conversation. We're going to start our podcast by going through a section where we tell our listeners about the company and like what it stands for. I have a twelve-year-old son. Right. Uh, there is this Reddit concept of Eli Five explain like I'm five. So I'm going to ask you for the ELI 12 explanation of what Zerodha is.
3: Yeah. ELI 12, I mean, that's quite a challenge. Okay, so, um, uh, yeah, whenever you start making money, right, um, you have to either, you know, whatever you earn, you, you have to save it, right? You have to save it for your retirement. And if you're saving, you can either keep it in a bank or you know, buy real estate or buy gold, or invest into companies. And the reason I think you need to invest into companies is because, uh, in you know, by the time you're fifty-two, you know, forty years from now, if you have to do well with your investments, uh, with your savings, uh, you should beat inflation. Right? Inflation is essentially how much you know man- value of your money you're depreciating every year. So. The only way to be able to do it is by investing in companies that are growing faster than inflation. Because if you keep money in your fixed deposit, you're gonna be at inflation. So you still don't really net gain anything. And um, so yeah, so you're into investing in companies. And if you wanna invest in companies, you need a stock broker. And
1: if you need a stock broker, you know, we're probably right there at the top, you know, in terms of whom you should select. So does that mean that out of the 10 million customers that you have, the vast majority do not contribute direct revenue for you i mean yeah i mean so why i mean i'm, I'm gonna ask a very direct question right what is the value in having them as customers for zerodha
3: yeah so uh, no we we charge an account as an annual maintenance charge so we make 300 rupees from every active customer of ours that means you know what of that one uh crore i think 65 lakh customers have pay us 300 rupees so it kind of Economies of scale kind of kick in, you know, when you're talking large numbers. So it's it's still kind of, you know, if you look at our overall revenue, you know, that what we make this annual maintenance charge doesn't really add up, you know. So it's it's still like five, six, seven percent of our revenues, you know. So, uh, but also the thing about you know the thing about building trust and you know people having trust in see the thing is we are almost like a bank. If someone opens an account with us and keeps his Hard earned money with us, you know, in terms of stocks, he's trusting us like the way he trusts the bank, and and that trust is extremely hard to get. It's very easy to build a transactional platform where you go transact and and you know it's kind of deals done. You know, like this is one of these like you go on a weekend date. You know, you don't really care about uh, who that person is, right? But if you're gonna get married, you know, you're gonna care quite a bit. So so uh, uh, a bank, a broker. You're almost like getting into a marriage because you're you're getting into this relationship thinking I'm gonna be dealing with this person or you know, this this brand for for my lifetime, and that is really really hard to own, and uh, and I think that is really a lot more valuable than the revenues that we have today, right? And and that's what comes through all the 65 lakh customers who may not be really generating too much revenue for us, but the fact that they trust us, uh, with almost. 200,000 crores plus of securities. So that's how much uh, customer securities uh, are sitting in our demand accounts. Is, I, I can't really think of too many brands out there who, who, uh,
1: you know, who have that much trust. If you went back to that time, and if someone actually had cut you a cheque for let's say $2 million for let's say 20% of your company, what do you think might have happened to Zerudhar today? Definitely not this,
3: <laughs> so I'm 100% sure. Is I know most VCs today, and I kind of know how they think. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm extremely proud about what we stand for the, as a business today. And uh, and when I look back, it isn't really the money, et etc. That you know, and I, I they say I, is my takeaway from my life. Of zero. Luck. So it's just what we stand for as a business, and that wouldn't have been possible if if we had gone to a professional VC and raised some money, and then had the pressure of growing year on year, year on year. And I mean. It's, it would have been impossible to build a zerodha type of a business. We could have still built a large business, you know, a large profitable list. No, I'm sure by now we would have enlisted and all of that if there was a VC, you know, in the, in the beginning. Yeah, so no, but, but I, think, I think, you know, those were the times when I learned quite a bit. And around 2001 is also, I think, when I first went online. So, you know, I, I remember going to this Satyam, whatever, InfoWay and you know, started uh, Yahoo Messenger Group. For For traders, you know, so I mean I started interacting with other traders and et cetera, so uh, which is I think also played a big part in Zeroza being successful because it was not just me trading, it was me interacting with traders from two thousand one onwards, and I've always had the key to kind of trying to share what I know uh, and it's it's almost like you know where did that come from? I don't know, I mean, it's just I think genetic whatever you know, so um, you know, like, like this is the same thing, you know, me and Kalash keep talking about it, you know, when I says, and he talks about force, I don't understand how people can spend time effort on on a product and then give it away for free. And then he comes back to me and says, you know what, you take the effort of writing and then you write it and just share it for, you know, I mean, so it's kind of, you know, maybe that's how me and Kay also hit off quite a bit, I guess, you know, so... Uh, So, yeah, so that, that, um, so I used to run some really large Yahoo Messenger groups. Uh, I used to run some really large Orkut communities when Orkut started. And I used to, you know, I kind of like the power of hiding behind Nathan Hawk. So, you know, all these communities I ended up hiding behind pseudonyms, you know. So I used to call myself Tarzan in some places and Columbus in some places,
1: you know. And what advice would you give to a younger you that might, make him get to where you are today, but faster. Do you think it would be possible? No, I mean, I, I, I keep thinking
3: about it and uh, I think I would not change anything in my life because any small change in my life wouldn't mean that I'm not where I am today. And uh, because it's just been so many instances of right place, right time, you know. So, you know, if I, I, if I think about it, if I dropped one semester late from college, I probably would not be here, right? I would, you know if... If I didn't take that call center job, which I did, you know, just on the whim, uh, I wouldn't be here, right? If I didn't do those multi-level marketing jobs, you know, I wouldn't be here. So, I mean, I, I quit my call center job because I decided to go to a gym. And in that gym, I found this person next to me who asked me, Nitin, what do you do? And I said, I trade the markets. He said, can you show me how you're performing? I showed him. And then he said, Nitin, can you manage money for me? And I quit my job next day. So if I hadn't gone to the gym, I probably would have... Continue. I mean, if I studied well in college, I'd probably be a software engineer. You know, so it's it's. Uh, so I I can't I can't really think of what can I go back in time and what can I change. Even even in the journey of Zeroda itself, you know. So like I think there've been so many tipping points. You know, like meeting Kailash has been the biggest tipping
1: point. Of what is it that you feel you add most value to, uh, to Zeroda as a CEO? Yeah,
3: I I think you know just being uh i have done you know this this job in different kind of contexts which is you know i was a trader first i've interacted with traders uh, and and then i kind of get the business quite okay so i think i think i get the overall context which a lot of people lack which means i can uh think longer term versus shorter term because i think today you know across the world across businesses everyone's kind of wired to constantly think short term because that's what you get most rewarded for and but but I, I think as a ceo more you know i think i think the job is to be able to think long term you know to think what can change in 5 years what can change in 10 years and and not really try to curve fit your business for what is right for the next 3 months 6 months and and i think that freedom that i have is also because there are no investors on board and right? because if there were then i would probably have the same quarter on quarter or year on year pressure to grow at a certain rate etc but um, like just like I said earlier, right? Like just to look at the 65 lakh clients that we have, who don't generate revenue for us as long-term relationship, who will you know, who are bringing a lot of value, you know, on, on the platform, right? And these are 65 lakh people who, who probably are talking about Zeroda to their friends and family, and that's a lot more valuable than any money you can generate out of them, right? Because uh, you know, I've said this before that if we had to spend as much money as our competition has spent in acquiring users, we wouldn't be a profitable startup today. Right. And
1: um, how do you think about this? You said, you know, your ability to essentially look ahead next five years, like, I mean, can you take us through, I mean, I'm sure it's not a discrete process, but when you think about the future, how do you think about it? What are the pieces that come together? Are you thinking about it while playing while driving a car in bangalore's traffic i mean how do you do this how do you think about the future yeah i mean i think i think that has become a big challenge today
3: to have time to sit down and think right so yeah so that's why i drive my car myself uh you know every time i'm traveling on the plane i make sure i'm not watching anything on the tv and and kind of you know sitting and using the time to think um i i I love swimming and running so i i kind of uh, also, end up thinking quite a bit, especially when I'm swimming, because at least when you're running, you can listen to some music, but swimming you know is, is like is almost like meditation of sorts you know and um so these are all times when I'm you know usually kind of you know in the zone uh thinking about potential outcomes you know i'm I think one of the things I'm constantly trying to do as a as a person, as a business, et cetera, you know is is always trying to factor in the worst case outcome right as in what's the worst that can happen? And um, and yeah, and I, I I really can, you know, think of like really worst case outcomes, and and then you know spend some time trying to make peace with it, because I, I think that helps me be, be rational when things are not going that great of sorts, you know. And uh, like you not know, just to be able to say that you know what, next two years I'll degrow as a business, right? And and because I made a peace with it, saying you know the last two years were just bumper years. It is impossible for the markets to continue to grow at that pace right and you know given whatever is happening in the us you know it's it's just bound to impact us as a country at some point of time and uh so to be able to say that and make peace with it and then then you know you you can work you know there's a lot lot more freedom in the in the way you can be able to work and you know when i made peace with it the entire team has made peace with it so no one's fighting it right uh and then, you know, whatever has to happen, like I said earlier, will happen. You know, I mean, the idea is to get up every day and try to do something better than what you did last year, last day, you know. And, and if you can keep doing it, you know, you know, good things can happen.
5: Do you believe you are or should be replaceable?
3: I mean, this is a conversation that, that's running internally in our team, as in the company as well uh you know we are talking about bus factor and and you know the biggest risk to the business and i'm i'm kind of right there at the top in terms of risk and the reason i am there is because of my risk taking abilities uh you know which is something that's missing in the business today and i i keep talking about it to everyone within the company as well uh is um because you know you stop taking bets as a business no a bet isn't just new product right a bet is even a social media post, for example, you know, I mean, like the way I drafted that one crow post, right, that's a bit because, you know, it, it reached to three, four million users. So, you know, it kind of helped the business in some way. So, you know, you're constantly trying to look at everything that's coming by as an opportunity or a risk. And if you think it off a risk, you're trying to do whatever to reduce the risk. If it's an opportunity, you're trying to leverage on it. Right. And, and that ability, you know, is something that I'm, you know, I have a, a really close team that I, you know, I call it the Z team. Uh, 25 young uh, kids, you know, of sorts, you know, I mean, not kids, I mean, 25 year olds, you know, 25 to 30 year olds, and I'm constantly trying to get them to uh, think like this way, you know. So, and uh, and the idea is to be replaceable. Uh, one of the big challenges of not having money as a goal is that once you have the money, you can potentially get bored with life very soon, right? In the sense, you know, I mean, I can get up tomorrow morning and, you know, what say, screw this, right? I said I want to go. I don't go by a beach and put a shack and you know play football or basketball or whatever. And so, uh, so that's a risk, you know, that's a risk that I have. Um, I mean, my personal risk and, uh, and we, we've been talking internally, you know,
1: you're a millennial, I think borderline millennial, right? You're 43, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and you're dealing with these smart, like, you know, 20, 25-year-old Gen Zs, right? right? And you, you, see, you said something like, I'm showing them an opportunity and saying, what would you do? And if I go back earlier in a conversation, you said, work hard, make every day, you know, the best day compared to the last, all of those things, right? Yet there's a lot of literature about how these values are shifting between Gen X Millennials right. and Gen Z. Gen Zs necessarily don't look at the world. Uh, many of them have been brought up in privilege. They have an abundance of information and insight. They're all well educated. They don't see the world the same way right. that you might have. Do you see that in your company? And if you do, what do you do about it?
3: the thing is, you, like I, I've to make peace of peace with you know with this thing saying I can't really if you know. Uh, affect majority of the team right so so i really care only about the people who i think will be future leaders for the business you know people who will kind of decide the direction of the business you know if i'm not around and etc and and that's where i try to influence them to think in a certain way now to get into that sphere of influence i mean within the business tell us your tricks no, no i mean i think culturally they have to just think you know like what the business thinks Right, so it's a uh, the cultural fit has. See, we are a very unique business in that way, culturally. Right, as in, I've never set targets to anyone on the team. Right, and I don't know how many businesses out there can say something like that. Right, as in, because I've always believed that you put targets, you know, people will find a way to miss sell, and you know, if you miss sell, you know, your customers are not gonna like you. If your customers doesn't like you, I mean, it's eventually gonna hurt you as a business. You know, maybe not in the short run, but you know, in the long run. Right, so. Uh, you know, as soon as you get like, you know, I've had this conversation with aggressive, like, you know, for sales position, etc. Like, you know, like, Nathan, I will get to these many customers. Like, dude, I mean, how are you even claiming that you'll get to this many customers, you know? So, so yeah, so there is a certain culture at So, right?
1: What's your best kept secret about finding
3: talented people? I, I don't know about. Finding talented people, but I think uh, uh, one of the things I've tried very hard is to undersell when we're hiring uh, is, you know I've kind of realized that people who come only for the money kind of go away for money, right as in we haven't ever hired a person promising ESOPs or whatever. I mean today everyone's made we've had a large financial outcome because of that, but we not 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 once hired anyone saying, You know what, you join? you'll get stake in the business, the business grows. Uh, and then you you know stake grows and stuff like that even our ESOPs are you know have no strike price so they're essentially more RSUs than ESOPs uh, so no one is kind of trying to you know improve that strike price of sorts you know and uh, so what I've realized is this whole underselling uh, and then trying to over deliver in terms of uh, what people are expecting when they join you is um, just people respect you a lot more and they kind of We've had hardly any attrition, you know I mean in our tech team aspe- especially, right? As in it's crazy. How big is your
1: tef- tech team? It's
3: thirty-five, you know, it's it's I mean they're all monsters. I mean all, but the thing is again, you know, the tech team again was is just exactly that. No pedigree in terms of no IITs and whatnot. As in everyone, hobby programmers and I think I don't know, Kalash like the culture, fit and you know, and, and their projects, their pet projects that they had. And, uh, and they all um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, uh, I think this whole underselling is just not for your investor, but I think you also need to kind of undersell or deliver for, for people who kind of join you, you know, within your, t- it was very hard over the last two three years, right? Because like, you know, I, I look at people starting businesses now and I'm like, dude, how do you even hire good folks, right? As in it's, it's, uh just became so transactional of sorts right as in like everyone's um you almost need like three four million dollars just to kind of have an m v p of sorts today as in uh hopefully that corrects because it's not good you know I mean, it's not good for the for the country as well as in you know so, uh but yeah, but I think uh, uh that's kind of worked out very well is, which is
1: undersell when someone's you know when you're trying to hire someone so when you say you haven't hired anyone in the last two three years does it mean that while the 1100 number may have remained roughly the same, has there been some backfilling due to some natural attrition yeah, yeah, that's yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. Right? I
3: mean, so the thing is, uh, I think 50 or 60 people have left and 20 or 60 have joined, you know, and especially in support functions. And it's it's really at the bottom of the, like, you know, people who come to answer customer queries and et cetera. And uh, and, and these are generally freshers. So I I don't even, now I'm not even involved in, in that
1: hiring. anymore. In this, What does it feel like? Because this feels like a... Almost hypothetical construct. It's like living in a country where inflation is zero, and it's like being in a company where attrition is zero and you're not hiring, especially right. at the scale at which you are. What does it therefore mean for you when it comes to how you view talent and employees? Right. Is it is hundred percent of your efforts then on retention? Where 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 do you focus your right. efforts on no, I mean, talent I'm, I'm and culture?
3: Upskilling people. You know, most of my time really. It goes away, keeping people motivated that they need to get better, and um, and then I spend a lot of time sharing everything that I have to say, you know, on every single thing that comes across, and I share it with the entire team. It's no holds barred, as in there is no, I'm not going to talk about something on this platform, you know. So I get there and I share as much as I can.
1: When you say platform, So the same like the you got in, inside a platform, like a Slack. Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those
3: discourse. Okay. forums, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, and yeah, so it's uh, that is kind of uh, I think I think yeah. So right now it's about uh, especially because we are all work from home. You know, it's uh, it's it's important. Are you fully remote, partly. I mean. Almost fully, I think 30 or 40 people come to office and I mean, some of us go on Fridays, but uh, the rest of the team is, you know, many of them have actually moved out of Bangalore and they're in smaller towns and cities. So, so yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's forever, you know, it's, it's not coming back. And uh, so we have leveraged quite a bit on this tool to uh, kind of share as much. But I also understand that not everyone's ambitious in life and um, there's only so much someone can get motivated to do and uh, uh so yeah so um, you know we are like but it's still a you know personally for me i'm thinking you know what happens if new people are not joining and how do we then uh, find newer folks to kind of lead fresh blood newer yeah.
1: perspectives
3: so uh no it's, it's it's something that i'm thinking quite a bit about you know i uh, recently you know i was playing basketball with this kid and um and then, you know, he's, he played football with me and then he played, you know, pool with me. And I was like, oh, you know, you have skills. And then I said, well, why don't you come to the office for an interview and we ended up uh, hiring him, you know. So, no, I'm using every opportunity to find uh, people, I think, who have like broader skills and not just, uh, you know, some common sense and broader skills and, you know, then you can get them to pick up the business quite easily.
1: My last question in this theme is You've said earlier, we don't have revenue or growth targets. Most companies do. It's almost taken as a given. How do you therefore measure success at an individual level, at a team level, at an organizational level at Zerodha? Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, right
3: from the start, it was about saying, you know, the business has to be profitable, right? As in, you know, so that was the first measure of success saying, are we doing something? Generating profit and also kind of giving us sufficient you know, like ability to add to a war chest of sorts if something were to go wrong, because I understand that you know it's very easily possible that the world can go into trouble for three five years. I mean we haven't seen large bear markets of sorts in the you know in the recent past, but if you go back in time, you know, like say Japan was hot till late 80s and early 90s, and it's been in a bear market like 20 30 years now. Isn't, you know in the in a sense, so that can very easily happen to any country right as in and and uh so i think today i feel very successful as a business because we we today have like 11 year runway 11 12 years of runway and and um so I'm, i know that tomorrow morning if you know how do you
1: define runway for our listeners
3: if tomorrow morning revenue is zero then can i continue paying everyone and if if i can for how many years you know so yeah workforce plus infra, et etc so it's it's kind of a, a peaceful spot to be, and you know you know that we'll figure something in 11 years you know, that's so.
1: that's freedom yeah
3: you know so uh, yeah, so that's that's
1: what are the top three failures you feel Zeroda has made, and you could define failure as either a misstep or a missed opportunity
3: uh, so I think the first time we kind of scaled was 2018, 17, 18. Uh, where, you know, suddenly we had a lot more users than we thought we'll ever have. And our platforms didn't really scale that well. That was because of a dependency on the vendor products. Because at the core of our business, you know, we kind of still rely on an underlying vendor product, you know. So, um, and that didn't really scale well, which meant we had a bunch of issues. And um, so we got, you know,
1: like social media is like a double-edged sword. I and, mean, you know, we got like trolled quite a bit. Tell me that. When you when you get an idea, what is the first thought that goes to your mind? Is it what's the most I can lose or what's the most yeah, I can get? I, I'm a, I'm a
3: trader. So for me, unless I make peace with the risks, I would never think about rewards. You know? so, you
1: know, and, so you think about the downside first yeah. and cap it to some extent and then you think about the upside.
3: I mean, if it's not capped, I wouldn't even do it. Like for example, the 2015 decision of going zero brokerage was because 3% of our revenue is coming from equity investors. So, so I had made a piece with it saying that if I lose, I'm losing 3% of equity you know, brokerage. I mean, 3% of our revenues, uh, but with the potential of morality. right? Uh, and also with the potential that if it didn't work, I can go back charging. You know, there is no rule that says I can go to zero and can't come back up. It's hard to come back up, but you can potentially come back up. Uh, so So it kind of, you know, made sense to attempt it. And that was instinctive because, uh, you know, I mean, the first thing I did was actually call a chartered accountant and said, you know, I mean, uh, dude, how much will we lose by, you
1: know, reconfirm your
3: calculations, reconfirm <laughs> my calculations. You know? So, uh, so, t- so typically what I, uh, what I've been doing whenever I have an idea is uh, I document it. I mean, I write it down and let it where, if I may. I mean, ask. usually it's in the middle of the night, so it's on Google Keep. Uh, you know, I mean, but then I take it, I put it on a Google Doc, and write it down, and share it with a bunch of folks. Let it you know, sleep on it for a while, and um, uh, and then 90% of them never make through. You know, they you know, kind of drops off there. Uh, kind of pick up on on the ones that feel okay in terms of risk to reward. I think, like I said, you know, I think trading, running a business—it's—it's—it's it's, it's all very similar skill sets. You know, every time you buy a stock, you're thinking risk to reward. Saying, I think business is also about that. As in, you and and then you know, in in trading, there's this whole concept called bet sizing, which um, which is you know, not every trade you take the same bet size. You know, in the sense, you have ten lakh rupees, you can't be putting ten lakh rupees on every trade. 90% of your trades, you probably should be putting only 20,000 rupees and 10% of the trades, you need to put 10 lakh rupees because if you don't do that large trades, you'll never make money in your life. Business also like that. I mean, you know, keep nibbling, keep doing small bets all the time. And every time, you know, something feels right, you know, the small bet starts showing results. You just kind of you know, put more meat behind it of sorts, you know? So, and uh, uh, trading business, even playing poker, to be very honest, it's, it's almost exactly the same thing. So,
1: In the context of business, how does this work? Are you creating, I mean, in the context of stock trading, you're creating optionality by buying and selling through the day, right? In the context of business, how are you creating these bets? Is it about creating lots of products and features and constantly testing so that you can double down on something really big when it comes up? What is the optionality for you?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, see, the thing is, uh, like I said, these bets in a business isn't really always new products or, you know, I mean, it could potentially be just an improvement or it could be, as simple as a support article written a certain way, you know, like someone has to have an incentive to spot it and then improve it because if there is no incentive to spot it and improve it, it'll not happen, right as in uh, so uh, so yeah, so I think as a as a CEO, my job is to figure how do we incentivize people to spot it. So we actually run something called a spot awards in the office. So anyone can spot any thing that can be improved in the business uh, right from the pay slip to anything and we give them an award and you know it gets calculated for the appraisals as well so you know there's people are fighting to spot issues in the business.
1: What are some of the first principles you turn to most often when you're faced with a significant decision when there are no priors, when there are no benchmarks and you know you have to take a decision what kind of first principles do you turn to?
3: I mean I think I think like one of the things I've realized in my life is that the, the tougher ones are mostly the right ones.
1: You know? So, the link to episode three with Nitin is in the show notes, which brings me to Naveen Tiwari, the co-founder and CEO of ad tech giant InMobi, which is not only a unicorn in terms of its own valuation, but was also the first Indian company to incubate another unicorn of its own, lock screen giant Glance. Naveen is one of the earliest tech entrepreneurs from India, having started his very first company, SMS-based search provider Mcoach, way back in 2007. Thus, survival is one of his recurring themes. Over the conversation, he talks about the mistakes he's made as an entrepreneur and his lessons from them, building careers and companies slowly instead of blitzscaling, CEOs pushing the envelope of what's possible within companies, and a lot more. Let's hear Naveen.
4: I've always believed, I'll tell you this, I've always believed uh, that if you want to build something long term, you have to essentially have people who stay. Builders are not the ones who come and go. Builders have to stay, they have to see, and then they can only build for you. And building takes long. It's not like one year or two years. And I think this notion of that we can build things in few, like, you know, sh- sh- short stint, that's not a true true thing. Now, I feel truly proud and, and fortunate to be having people who have spent so much time, like, you know, over five years, we have people probably closer to 450 or four, 400, 500 people spend over five years. That's why we're able to build things and we're able to scale them. And I feel I, we didn't design for it. It's happening. We're doing something right, and I, yeah, feel very very happy. Well, you know, if you have a fifteen years of journey uh, in a startup, the first few years is hard because you know we all know that they you you tend to fail, so you sur- you have to survive through that. But when when you have a fifteen year journey, then you have more such you know uh, near death moments. Near death moments. And we've had those, Uh, you know, about seven, eight years back, we've had those moments when we were not doing that well. We probably weren't as close to death as people announced it to be, but it is what it is, right? You feel that you're going to, because somebody else tells you that you might be, you know, close to death, you (laughs) think you're close to death. Uh, Yeah, so we think we are pretty solid survivors. Well, I think there were two or three pivotal moments in our journey. I think one. Pivotal journey, pivotal moment was just about a year or two after we raised, after we so-called became a unicorn because that got to our head um, and we lost all our bearings. And so we lost our bearings at that point of time, didn't really understand what it meant to scale a company. We were too young and I think we made a bunch of mistakes. We tried to fix it at that time, we did. Uh, And then we also made some, uh, we also had our own challenges in the way we were scaling the company from a business strategy point of in 2016. And I would say that really taught us, those two moments taught us a lot. And I think what did the teachers, if I were to just overtly simplify and summarize that, I would say one, uh, it told us that there is no, uh, there is, there is no second to being very disciplined about business, which meant you know, operating a business like it should be and treating it with that respect so that you're just doing the most boring things every day, which was, you know, run a company profitably. Why should you not run a company profitably if you can? Uh, B, take care of your people. Uh, so truly Before
1: take... you move on to B, how long did it take you to arrive at this wisdom that do boring things every
4: day and run a company profitably? One quarter. You get slapped big time hit big time, and you realize that what was I smoking? Why did I not realize that my business metrics, if I just looked internally more deeply, and I think I, you know, it was a mistake as a CEO to say, I didn't run the company the way it should have been run in 2013, 14, and 15, those three years, and I think I should have done a better job. And there is no taking away from the fact that I didn't do a good job to taking accolades of the fact that I fixed it in 2016. That is just post facto, but yeah, we did fix it. So yeah, it's a learning, and I don't want to repeat it ever again. In the sense that I don't want to get into that space ever again. So the run, I run the company very focused on core fundamental metrics, unit economics, cost in check. You know, just basics. Right, like we don't buy business, we don't buy revenue. For example, they seem very obvious and simple, but that's one of the things we try to do. Uh, second was a big dimension around people um we really changed our perspective around people and um you know try to do things very differently in terms of taking care of our people trusting our people really giving them a lot of opportunity to do things uh and we coined a term internally which we where we say look this is a family and i didn't mean them in a manner of just speaking and putting it on a on the halls but they actually were something uh, on the walls, but they were actually things that we meant when you walked the halls of the company. Uh, But at the same time, we wanted to win. So it was a culture of family, yet you wanted to win, which meant we wanted to build the organization from intern inside, which meant that over a long period of time, we wanted people to take risks, uh, be at the deep end of the pool, give them opportunities before they think they're ready for it and get them to do things that they couldn't believe that they could do, and that's worked really well for us. So today, when I run three or four companies uh, within in Mobi, it's because there are leaders who can run these things independently today, and I don't have to necessarily be the one trying to do this. Um, and so having a bench strength of leadership has been a big factor of success. The third one is there is capital does not create innovation. Innovation creates innovation, which means that you have to put your head down and truly think about what a consumer needs, what is it that you're creating which is different, and there is no shortcut to that. It will take you as many experimentation and failures as it needs to, and once you get to the answer, you get to the answer. There is no PowerPoint or Excel sheet that can tell you how to get to the answer at what point of time. There is unpredictability and we are okay with that ambiguity and, um, and unpredictability as an organization. So those three things I would say are things that we learned about five, six years ago. And I attribute a lot of what we are able to do today uh, to that. Now that took us, yeah, that took us a few years to get to. You're 44 today.
1: What advice would you give to a younger 20-something? you that might possibly have allowed that 20 something to get to where you are faster than what you is there anything like that
4: I would say huh, it's an interesting question would I start earlier maybe would I would I have started on this journey a little earlier maybe I would I would say say that um would I change much about this journey there is a part of me which wants to change some of these things where i failed but i also know those are the reasons why we get to where we are today so i think just i think here is what i'll say i fretted too much on success too much about success to begin with i don't do that anymore uh, but i fretted too much about like being successful you know, being better than the other company around me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a game of competition. This is, um, this is a thing about generational. So you can be fast or slow. It doesn't really matter. If you do it rightly, you will create gigantic impact in the world. Uh, Who cares about three, four years here and there in this whole picture? Uh, So, I think we are being, we become very myopic with time as a factor uh, because the world of startups is driven by venture capitalists who have a life cycle of seven years. So we think in those, uh, you know, seven to 10 year life cycle, but for people who are building good companies, you don't have to do that. You can just, just be at it. By
1: seven to 10 year cycles, you mean that's the time they have to deploy their money and to get an exit, and to return that money. And therefore, the companies that they invest in have to operate at a subset of that cycle.
4: That is correct. And therefore, they ask you not to... They generally are not sitting there and saying, hey, can you build for 20 years? Because when you think about building for 20 years, when you are a 25-year-old, or a 30-year-old...
1: It does not process.
4: It doesn't process. You have no idea. Like, if at a 30-year-old, me, you know... Somebody said, hey, build for 20 years and here's how you should think about it. Well, that would have been so different. Uh, And it doesn't process because there is no one who is telling you, sitting you down and telling you that. Uh, And, you know, for example, most of my conversation with people today is to say, grow slow. This is like... Why do you say that? Because it's not sustainable. Fast scaling is not sustainable. Uh, blitz scaling is overrated. Didn't you
1: just say your business is growing
4: at 50 to 100%? That's correct. But it is not because I'm forcing it. If it happens, it happens. I I was okay. There was a point of time a few years back, five, six years back, our business grew about 15%. And it was hard at that moment, but it was the right thing to do because the business actually became stable. It was unit economics positive. From there on, it'll just, let it naturally grow was the point I was trying to make, or it's the point I try to make. Um, when you say grow slow, you are in effect saying focus on the right things, go and focus on the right things of the business, and then the business growth will take care of it because you've built a good product, you have a good go-to-market. You know it'll grow at it, whether it has to grow at thirty-five percent or sixty-five. You have no control beyond the point of doing all the right things, but. Don't try and force a growth rate because the minute you try to do this, you do, you build bad habits.
1: What makes you get up after you take a knock? And you've taken quite a knocks, few knocks along the way.
4: Yeah, uh, I think there there were two. in the, 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 the first time, the first time was pure need to survive. This was M coach days? No, look, the M coach days were more, well, were different because survival, well, you just had like, you, you had no nothing, you were nothing, right? It was just like, hey, let me not quit. So that was, let me not quit phase. The survival is like you've taken a knock, but I am not going to die phase for yourself is to say, I'm not going to go out like this. This is like, I want to go out on my own terms. That feeling is allows you to continue to be at it for a while. Off late, it's different. Off late, at, we haven't had those that level of knocks for many, many years. So, But off late, you still have those lows. But now it is to uh, believe that this is a journey and you know ups and downs are going to happen and i'm not in i'm not i'm not trying to prove anything to anybody and neither am i in a hurry so if you play the i we're now playing the long game and therefore the uh, you know the short innings here and there's you know don't matter anymore uh, and you play the long game have
1: there ever been any times when you've considered shutting down in mobi starting a new company, not doing anything for a while, any time during your, like, you know, early years, mid years, darkest times, has there ever been such a time? Never. Are you a goals or a journey motivated person? It used to be goals. And now it's journey. What were some of your earlier goals like and what does your journey look like now?
4: You know, you had a, I I didn't know, the, the first goal was to raise a lot of money. You did. And then you realize that, wait a second, that I achieved it, but why am I not happy? Then you go to the next one and you achieve that and you go to the next one. So you keep achieving these goals and you realize you're on a treadmill. And so you're never happy with any goal. And one could say, look, not being happy with any goal is a great motivation to continue to create bigger and bigger goals, but not living happily is not a great place to be at. And so today, I think the journey makes it uh, makes it very, um, it puts you in a very good place to be able to make decisions without fear uh, of failure, without fear of being judged, without fear of um you know proving yourself and therefore you actually on the contrary make bigger decisions because you're just part of this journey and you're not trying to get to a goal because when you try to get to a goal you optimize very differently and the human mind works to reduce failures versus increase the chances of success and i think over a period of time, as that has shifted to a journey, it's far more pleasant and apparently it's far bigger. But when you
1: said it was staring us in the face, with the benefit of hindsight, now we know that. Yeah. But in general, when you're operating in um, internet markets, digital markets, there are always rules and boundaries. Okay. and our worldview is determined by how everyone else sees it, how venture capitalists see it, how competitors see it, how entrepreneurs see it, etc. Are there any mental models that you've come to rely on that, I mean, you tell your leaders, co-founders, employees, etc., that step back and look at things differently?
4: Yeah, I think few. I think one is, um, don't come and tell me a trend if it's written somewhere because it's not a trend, it's done. Second, you don't need an external validation for a unique idea. You have to be convinced yourself. And third, let's just use first principles to figure out if this is the right thing to do and how we should go about it, and we will back it and go for it. That's at least, and of course, when you're doing this, just think big, so that we can really go for something Quite significant. The sense that I've gotten is it's very hard to break the mold of external validation for people in the world. They seek external validation to say, hey, oh this company is saying that this is, then I should also do it. But by the fact that that company is saying they'll do it, they've, they've already spent two years. So you're already late in the game and technology cycles are three-year cycles, right, at best. So you're you're gonna come in to lose. So part of why I say that we, I feel we are being innovative as a company is we see, we see something which is not a trend and we try to build it. It's not also to say, hey, this is, you know, whatever. This is already done in the US and now we're going to try and this, do this in India. That's also not a trend. That's a, you know, I know the model, I'm going to replicate it in India and that's a perfectly good model. We just don't do it. So it's not a comment on the model, is just that we don't do it. So we really like this, firstly, because it creates, if you're successful, it creates disproportionate market, it creates uh, a, a sense of achievement, which is of very high, uh, very high nature by the team to say, look, we are creating something. And I truly believe if you want to put India on the map, you have to create things. You can't do it by not creating things. So creation is a big aspect of this. Let me give you another example to just uh, you know take this point further. When we acquired Raposo as a short video app, and six months post that TikTok was shut down, every strategy playbook said we should double down on short video. And we did exactly opposite to that.
1: What is it that you feel you add most value to in Moby as a CEO?
4: Can you repeat the question?
1: What is it that you feel you add most value to in Moby as a CEO? The one thing that I think you do best as CEO.
4: I think I have I am pretty good at pushing the envelope of what is possible and how it can be crazily imaginative. So I'm pretty good at that. But I will add a second one, which is equally important to me, which is to hold the principle philosophy of our people at the same time. What's uh, that?
1: What, when you say just the our
4: culture is very important. Those are the two things that I... There are two ways one can approach anything, right? One could say... I could, if for example, if somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, here is what I think I could do," I could ask the person to say, "Okay, what are the pitfalls?" The second is to say, "Here is what I see. It's like, okay, can't you see something beyond this? Um, And why aren't you trying to see that part of the world, which I think you can see it, but why aren't you pushing yourself to see that?" And most of the times, there is a fear of failure that people sit with to say, "What if I fail?" And what you're trying to, in effect, do is to say, "Don't worry about failure. I got your back." That's why I added the second dimension of the people philosophy. Because if you really want people to do some really, you know, something really well, you have to take away the sense of failure, the fear of failure, from there. Because nobody succeeds when you when they fear failures, and that when that starts to happen, it's it's magical because. People come up with like amazing things. Now, of course, that does not mean I don't worry about how will this thing fail and not succeed or get executed. But that's the one thing that, two things that I try to do.
1: What's your best kept secret? You keep
4: talking about people
1: a lot. What's your secret for finding great
4: talented people? I don't think I I have a secret of finding talent. I think I have a secret for unlocking talent. There's a difference. So for example, I think everybody... is hugely talented either they don't know or the organization doesn't figure it out what is the right place for them to be unleashing themselves I think we have a very open approach to unlocking people and their capabilities and doesn't happen in all cases but in many many cases we've been able to do this because of which the person feels that they're growing not just linearly but non-linearly in our organization so I think that would be our secret Hmm. But what
1: about finding new people? I, I notice a lot of your conversations implicitly or explicitly refer to talent as already within the company. But you also hire people. Yeah. Right. So how do you find great talent? I, I don't
4: have any any secret source of finding great talent. Is it just talking to uh, a lot of people? No. I just think our culture pulls better pe- pulls more people within it because good people get attracted because our people who already exist get those get them so I don't think I have a great I we have a very good way of getting great people in but I think our secret is an unlocking people and it's by the way not just the opportunity dimension I think we have even gone down the path of you know getting our people uh, uh deeply like we for example have hi- hired therapists uh psychotherapists in the company to work with every leader not just leader like work with like hundreds of people in the organization it's because. Every one of us, no matter who we are, have demons of our childhood and our past and our failures. And, you know, that basically block us. So how do you unlock everyone's capability to actually do 10x of what they feel at that point of time that they're doing? So it is at a unit level focus on those people, whether it is through therapy conversation, working through therapists.
1: At, at what point, may I ask, did you come across therapy as a... Four
4: years ago. It was, uh, uh, somebody suggested that I should go through it to try and see how it'll impact uh, my thinking. It did magic. It was wonderful. And and since then, we increased that program to actually having, I think we have close to about 10 in the company now. And probably 500, 400, 500 people go through it on a... Like it is like like their job is to just work with teams and individuals to say everyone should be 10x of who you are. And it's not as a goal. It's just keep unlocking people. Their fears go away. They suddenly become beasts. Uh, Over the last two years, we introduced another thing on top of it, which is because at some point therapy also taps out, is meditation at a company level to say, hey, let's uh, like, you know, whoever is interested, let's take you through a meditation program because if you want to make big decisions in life, it's not just good enough that I go through meditation and I make great decisions. What's the point of just me making great decisions? What is the power of like a few hundred people making great decisions? So, you know, we introduce those also as part of, uh, part of our, uh, you know, things that we support big time. So, you know, I've really cut down on classical uh, things that used to be done and kind of really... Uh, w- on the people management side? On the people Very, very focused on unlocking the mind.
1: And and the opening for that was when you yourself mm-hmm. yeah. tried out therapy. Yeah. Before I move on from this section on um people and talent, are there any great open-ended questions you ask people when you're meeting them, interviewing them that you'd like to share with us? Because great open-ended questions are What they weight in gold?
4: Most of the times when I ask, when I spend time with leaders, my question is, what do you see that others don't see? Now, it could be about the business. It could also be about themselves that they think they can do, but others don't see. So therefore, they don't go for it. But I spend a lot of time and I fundamentally believe that if people can see things that others don't see that unlocks nonlinearity uh, so at scale how do you do that is a is a question that i i don't think i grapple with but is a thing that i'm trying to do
1: what are the biggest learnings from your unsuccessful attempts at fundraising because what i'm describing is only the ones yeah, yeah. that you succeeded at i'm sure there were many where you did not succeed at
4: yeah uh, there was a point of time when uh, for the ad business, we we thought we should raise money and uh, we weren't able to. Um, and it, we didn't see the writing on the wall to say the business, re- the investors expected the business to be run profitably, to run diligently. We didn't see that sign. We thought, you know, you could still be in that cycle of raising capital. So I think one big learning is, to be able to predict far earlier before the investors turn their, and it's called the inter- investor sentiment, but it's mostly to say, hey, we expect this industry to now make money. That's pretty much what they're trying to say, which is correct. We just, like we are in this world of raising capital that you forget that you know they, the industry has reached a certain level of mid-maturity that you should have a sustainable business model, right? So I think that's one big learning that's come out of it. Second, we have had you know, when we were trying to raise for glance the first time we had many unsuccessful conversations, many numerous, which not to say that didn't have it for for inmobi, but for glance, we certainly had it. I, at least at the time of glance, it was more to say we have you know success, and so we know what we are trying to do, yet we weren't able to raise capital easily uh, in the beginning. And the reason was the model was so different from anything else that they'd seen. There were that no comparables.
1: There were benchmarks. no comparables.
4: So therefore, nobody was able to put it in some uh, Excel sheet Excel sheet, or some template. And I think that's where, you know, uh, Ajay Royan, who is, you know, uh, Mithril Capital's, uh, you know, founding partner, uh, was phenomenal because he's a contrarian uh, and looks at things from a first principle point of view. And we really hit it off because he's like, wait a second, this seems to be... This could be a rage if we get it right. And, you know, of course, there are, you know, ifs and bots attached to it at the time, he would put in the money. So you have to realize that you cannot get uh, dissuaded by a lot of the investors who just look at the model and say, "What is that fitting a template or not? Or is that fitting my theme of where I want to invest? And you should just, you hope to find that one or two investors who, who will see your worldview in the way you want to show it to them I'm pretty sure that's true for most companies because you know you know unless until you're in a sector which is considered hot which has its own challenges but if considered a sector which is considered hot you know you would have most investors kind of like not actually agree to what you're really trying to do so we feel pretty happy about the fact that we were able to find few people. Uh, third I would say I have increasingly find found a lot of value in strategics. Strategic investors, uh, if done rightly, Geo is an amazing partner to us. Uh, Google is a great partner to us. Uh, and we find that... Strategic uh, investors being companies they also give that business. operate in the space,
1: but also invest out of their that, own balance sheet.
4: That's correct. Plus, they also give you, you know, if done well, they'll also, you know, create help create business for you. Uh, and I think if you look at, again, if you kind of go step back or uh, outside the startup world or the or this you would see some of the most traditional companies they either raise capital from public markets and or they do these giant partnerships with one another and they build business over a five-year period and then they build and scale and scale and scale I think strategic partnerships and ability to Manage those partnerships is a, if done rightly, could be hugely valuable for, for startups. So that was the third thing that we learned uh, in our process of capital raise. I think people underestimate the power of enterprise partnerships and enterprise partnerships are slow relative to what we believe or startup world believes paces but what they what people are missing in that is even if it's slow it is such giant leaps that you fast forward 4 years you're 4 or 5x larger than what you would have been able to do just by yourself uh yeah the first year or maybe two is going to be slow uh and i think uh, people people are not not necessarily looking at it that way now third i don't think it's in vc vcs don't necessarily uh, back those models, uh, uh, don't necessarily promote those partnerships, um, because they look at those guys as ones where they can sell into, sell their asset to, so they don't want them to do investments, uh, I think, you know, that's not the answer, uh, I think the answer is you got to, like, if you want to make it big, you got to, like, you got to figure out how to, like, partner with the elephants.
1: What are the top two failures you you feel in Inmobi has made? It could either be missteps or missed opportunities.
4: Two. I think one is uh, big ones. 2012-2013, um, we made a mistake in how we managed people. Mismanagement of people was a big aspect of us. Uh, we grew from 200 to 800 people in a matter of a year we treated people like commodities. I'm paying you a lot of money, you must work. You know, that kind of a, you know, um, mentality. This was post the soft bank funding. Yeah. So you had a lot of money in the bank. A lot of and money. Ambition. You have a lot of press. Everybody is flocking. You're like, I'm the king. That's not how it works. You got to be humble and you got to, you, you know, so we were thrown on the ground. So you kind of get up, dust yourself off and, you know, have some humility to what amazing people bring to the table and you, you know, bow down to that a little bit. That was one. Second was, we, uh, we tried to, we tried to essentially continue to grow the business in an unsustainable manner because that was the theme that we were seeing in the, in the market out there. And that time, few models were getting invested into this is 2016 and not that time period. We thought that is the answer to it. Um, only to realize that different industries have different cycles at which they will basically not be funded anymore, um and therefore we, are, we made wrong business decisions for almost a year to continue to grow unsustainably uh only to come back and really change our playbook to hopefully be more sustainable uh, and uh, there was a there was a minor event in that which is uh, which small in the largest scheme of things, but big in our own terms, we launched a platform called Meep. The Green Monkey. And it was a spectacular failure because of that headline. That one headline. Which one headline? Yeah, that's exactly the one that you said.
1: The Green Monkey. Uh, Yeah,
4: and it was not. (laughs) But it was termed in New York Times, headline, everything in the text was correct. The headline just said, the monkey killed the product. Now, what was the learning? If
1: you want to listen to all of Naveen's insights, head over to episode 4, also linked in the show notes. And finally, we have Anant Narayanan, the co-founder and CEO of Mensa Brands, a global tech-led house of brands. I know, it's a mouthful, which earned the distinction of becoming India's fastest unicorn. It buys existing brands and then punches up their scale by providing the resources and the knowledge to do so. Anand says that's no different from a PNG which too is a house of brands if you look really close. Anand talks about the emotional toll founders pay silently each day learning to manage energy instead of time. The best way to solicit and give feedback and many more things. Let's listen to Anand. But how does Every, that differentiate no, you from a D2C like brand? A standalone D2C
5: brand uh, The versus... only difference in my mind between a standalone D2C brand and us is, I think one, the portfolio has some benefits, because by definition, uh, technology can be across, operations can be which across. Which is essentially the roll-up element, right? Which is like, part, you know, the, which is part yeah. of the roll-up element. But I would say Unilever is a roll-up. play. Absolutely. I right? mean, I definitely right? want to get into that I, yeah, so as Unilever we go along is this one, I think any of these, right, P&G is one, it's a house of brands, right? I think the difference in my mind is, are you digital first, hmm. right? I mean, our our DNA and, and the way we have sort of created this is very sort of tech first. I'll give you an example. Um, if you think about pricing, or if you think about growth hacking on a platform, and I'll explain what each of those is, right? If you think about pricing, if you have 10,000 SKUs, right? You can't price them one at a time. You have to price them using tech and analytics. And we built that from the scratch when we started uh, Mensa because a lot of us have heritage in e-commerce and therefore build out tech and product, right? So I think digital first is the differentiator. I think it's a house of brands play. That's right. By the way, now we've started incubating. So Villain, we bought us a Fragments brand. We have launched Personal Care. Now is that aggregation and roll-up or is that incubation? Look, and does it really matter?
1: How do you? What does your typical week or day look like? How do you budget for it? What percentage of it is calendared? What percentage of it is unstructured?
5: So I'm an early morning person. So I wake up by, early morning. I wake up between four and four thirty. Um, I don't do any real sort of electronic work till maybe six thirty in the morning. Um, I do a little bit of meditation. I write down notes on things that I think I need to do, etc. With pen and paper. With pen and paper. Um, so uh, I think that helps me. It helps for me. It's an easy way to focus and so on. Uh, I would say sixty percent of my days is is quite calendared. Uh, the remaining, there's always some issue or the other so I leave open slots in my calendar for either people issues, some crisis that happens, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm, uh, I'm a big believer in managing energy, not time. And I think they're two very different things. Help us understand that. Um, some activities give you energy. For me, by the way, problem solving on a new area gives me energy. Sitting through a review takes away a little bit of energy. Um... Uh, so, what I try and do is, I try and do a lot of my problem solving, decision oriented meetings in the morning when I have better energy and higher energy and so on. And I do a little bit more of the things uh, which take away a bit of my energy, sort of sprinkle through the day. So, and should we, we consider with those
1: who have to do review presentations? I with think you so. In the I think half. you
5: should. You should. You should. Um, so, I think that's how I sort of calendar my day. I, I don't, I mean, I go to sleep by 1030, 10 10, 10 30. Um, right. Yeah. And I spend, a, I mean, I try not to do anything between 8 and 9 in the evening. So I'm with my kids and family and so on. So I, I block that out. So I don't think I have the answer for everything. I think the first is, um, uh, you know, a little bit of this is just how you grow up, right? So I, I'm sort of, you know, I don't like giving up so easily. I think that's... Where does that come from? I think maybe my parents. I think they were very sort of, you know, hardworking sort of my father came from Dindakal and, you know, studied in a Tamil medium school and sort of came up the hard way, right? And I think that made a big difference, right? I think he sort of never gave up. I mean, he could have given hundreds, he couldn't speak English till 11th grade, right? And he's sort of was in railways and then worked his way up and so on, right? So I, I don't believe in giving up so easily. So I think that's one thing that keeps me going. The second is, uh, Rohan, to be honest, I get very excited by possibilities, right? I mean, about, like for me, I mean, once I get enthusiastic about it, I, I, I sort of, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what the near-term pain that you have to go through is, if you feel like there's something very interesting, right, in the end that you can build. For me, even in the med life days when we were going through tough times, it just felt like telehealth was here to stay, right, and and sort of you were really genuinely improving things. So you know, you sort of I think and and a bit of a longer-term view to what you're building, I think, makes you sort of helps you ride through the tough spots. The third thing that makes me get up after Knox, quite honestly, is my family. I think, um, you know, Sandhya, my wife and the kids, all by the way, are hugely supportive. And I think that really helps because I mean, when you're, I, 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 no life is a straight journey, right? I think startup life, everybody thinks only about the good things. I mean, you asked about the unicorn, but the reality is, uh, I think the day in and day out is very hard. Uh, and I think it's a tough job. And it's, uh, it's it takes a lot out of you emotionally. It takes a lot out of you physically. And I think, therefore, having a bit of a supportive family helps. I think these may be the three things.
1: Let's go a little bit more into the emotional part. Because that's one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot. Yeah. Why does it take a toll on you emotionally?
5: Uh, the first, Rohit, is I think you're alone. I mean, you can't share your fears, your anxieties, um, certainly with the chem, um, I'm just joking, but I think you can't share it with your investors. Uh, you can't share it with even your top team in many ways, right? Because, you know, you a lot of the startup is about creating. I mean, it's about impossible odds. I mean, if you look at any stats, it's impossible odds, right? And therefore, it's very lonely. And that builds up in terms of stress, right? You don't have somebody to talk to. Uh, You don't have somebody that you can actually really... What do you do about that? Uh, I, by the way, talk to Sandhya. I talk to my wife. And I think that it becomes uh, much easier because, I mean, it's one of those people I have full trust and I can actually have the conversation. And I think you need just a non-judgmental listener. You don't really need anybody to solve your problems. And someone who will also call out bullshit. And someone who calls out bullshit. So I think that really helps. I think so. That's one reason, I think, for the stress. I think the second, which I think is partly media-driven and partly your own is the need to sort of appear successful all the time. And I think it's complete bullshit, right? I mean, the reality is, there's not a single founder that I met. Incidentally, I met 752 founders in the last 16. months. I keep count, I like have notes about that. Not one, not one has gone through only good times, right? But yet, if you go look at social media posts, you look at any of our posts, including mine probably, right, you only see the positives, you don't see the negatives because you don't want to portray it. I think these are the two things that I think add up to stress and I think I've become better at it now in the last in Mensa because I I think going through a couple of cycles really, really helps. Right At some level, it doesn't matter, right? And I think that, that mindset shift, I think, takes a lot of effort to get to.
1: How does this emotional baggage or stress way as you go lower down the organization uh, for the average employee who may also be like, you know, stressed and wondering about the future and if the economy is slowing, et cetera, and stuff like that. What do you do as CEO?
5: How do you handle that? The first is communicate. It seems very basic, but, you know, I think lots and lots and lots of communication around the good, the bad, what's going on, I think is helpful because most times when people don't know, they imagine things that are much worse than they actually are so one of the things i do even today it's whatever as i said been 17 months right every week i send out a top of mind message to the entire team saying here is what i'm going through here are the priorities that i think there are etc right i think just this constant flow of communication helps because you know the good you know the bad you know so that's one thing that i think helps the second i think rohan is actually having a bit of fun at work right i mean unfortunately you know, we all, I mean, not unfortunately, I think we all work hard. It's a fact. But I think making sure you take a little bit of time out, whether it's once a month, whether it's once a quarter, whether it's once a week, depending on who you are, and and just going out and hanging out and getting a drink together makes a huge difference, right? So we do that quite religiously, and I think that's helped, right? It's not like Mensa doesn't go through stress. Of course, we all do. But I think these two things, at least for me, have helped a lot. And I think it helps people across all levels of the organization. Transparency and communication and making sure you're fun. What do you think is your single biggest,
1: if you were to pick one value add, which is your highest value add to Mensa as CEO, energy. what is that?
5: Energy. I think bringing energy. I think, you know, it's tough to push day in and day out, create brands, grow brands, 20 businesses, blah, 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 right? So I think just I bring hopefully, I mean, if you ask the Mensa people, that's what they will say. I think it's bringing energy to the table.
1: You said you've met 752 founders. I'm assuming you've met many, many more talented professionals. Yes. Including to interview them to join Mensa. Yep. Do you have a best-kept secret about finding great, talented people?
5: Yes. I don't know about a best-kept secret, but I do have a method to it. What is it? A method, in my mind, is a little bit of what McKinsey does. I think McKinsey attracts outstanding talent, right, uh, in many ways. Uh, the first is, I think you test for culture because I think either you have a culture fit or you don't. And there are many ways to test for culture fit, right? I mean, the classic one is the airport test. If you're, if you're stuck in a 20-hour flight with a person, would you enjoy it versus not, right? I mean, you know, so there's a culture fit question.
1: What Do you have a culture fit question for Mensa? Like, do you have some questions that you typically ask?
5: Um, I try and find out if they have other interests outside of work, right? I try and find out about, a little bit about the family. I try and, I mean, you need to know the person as a human being, right? And I think that makes a huge difference to to what this is. So that's number one. Number two is I test for learnability. Because the problems that you face in Mensa will not be the problems you're faced elsewhere. So can you learn something? And there are many ways, right? You throw a problem at them and you find out, can they solve the problem? So I almost with all my interviews, I give them a problem and actually solve the problem alongside them. And that really helps.
1: Tell us about some of the open-ended questions that you keep coming back to to spot
5: talented people? Yeah. So the first is I ask them about a road not taken in their past and why they did or did not do it, right? And I think that's usually quite telling. I mean, it's interesting. So
1: what are you trying to assess? For
5: example, I try and assess risk, risk appetite. I try and assess what did they learn from it and are they therefore doing something different from it? And I think you get them to talk about therefore the Self-reflection journey. as Yeah, well. it just gets them to reflect a little bit. So I think that's been very good for me. Uh, the second question I usually ask is, tell me about the one area or the one experience where you think you had the most impact ever, right? It can be outside of work, it can be in work, but what did you actually do? And I get into a lot of detail on what did they actually do to make that impact happen. And there you can get a lot of sense on, is this guy trying to sort of climb a corporate ladder? Is he trying to make an impact? How does he work with other people, he or she? How do they work with other people? So these two questions really help. When should founders see you step back? I think, by the way, uh, there's no time horizon. I do think there is a business stability horizon. I think there is a point when you're creating and there's a point when you're optimizing. Usually, you're not the same person for both, right? So I think when you go from creation to optimization, I think getting a professional who's done it before, who's seen it before, actually really helps, right? Likewise, by the way, what got you from zero to 250 million won't get you from 250 million to a billion in revenue, right? So... Again, when you start to think about scale and systems and process, getting somebody different might actually be the right answer. It's a hard thing to do um, and a hard thing to get right. But I think there are, there are now enough uh, people in the startup ecosystem who have done it.
1: All right. What are some of the first principles that you typically turn to most often when you're faced with significant decisions, when you're evaluating things ground up? What first principles like, you know, do you rely on?
5: So I think there are two types of decisions. There are reversible and irreversible decisions. So I don't sweat. Is too that much. a lens
1: that you often I
5: often do it. So I look at a reversible versus an irreversible decision. So for example, there are many operating decisions. You know, will I get my spring summer twenty three right and should I make the right inventory bet? I mean, yes, you could get it wrong, but it's not gonna say it's not gonna change my life in any way, right? So there I sort of don't sweat too much in terms of making the decision. Investing into a business or buying a company, depending on the size of the company, I spend a lot more time on. So I think first is I decide which decision matters, right? In terms of how you do it. The second in terms of, uh, I I try to sort of do two things. The first is, what if I got this decision right? What's the upside? And the second is, what if you got it right? What's the maximum downside? And sort of putting that down on a piece of paper really helps me, right? So a downside for buying a business at 30 crores is, is 30 crores. But the upside could be 150, right? So, you know, making that, sort of putting that down and sort of, uh, that really helps me. The third is I often sleep over a decision, especially for the important decisions. Don't make it like immediately. Take an extra day, it's not going to change it. For the, sh- for the ones that don't, that are reversible, you do it fast. Their velocity matters, right? It's a bit of this thinking fast, thinking slow, if you've heard of the economy. Yes. Okay.
1: All right. What are three, four buckets that consume 80% of your work week?
5: Um, people, uh, hiring great talent and making sure that the existing set of people are motivated, excited, et cetera, is one big bucket. Second is thinking through long-term brand strategy and what are we going to introduce as new products? Um, three months, six months from now takes a bit, uh, second big bucket. Uh, the third big bucket is actually investment decisions at a weak level. So what am I making? what, what? what which business are we going to invest in, not invest in, etc. Is that the fourth? fourth is firefighting, which is you know we have had a great start to the festival season. You run out of stock, therefore, how do you actually make sure you get it? So these are the, roughly the four buckets that I spend time on.
1: What do you other CEO, sometimes people may just come yeah, to you? Yeah, so and
5: like, I I sort of deal with it. I think okay, uh, all
1: I right. Deal with it. Yeah, Let's, all right. What are some of the stock responses that people may hear from you if they come to you with a big hairy problem? pet phrases that you'll use?
5: We're asking all these difficult questions, man. It's very good. Um, I'm usually good with these interviews. Okay, uh, the pet phrase, number one is, break down the problem.
1: That goes back to first principles.
5: Goes back to first principle problem solving, break down the problem for me. Tell me what you think are the component pieces and why they are the component pieces and are there any pieces that I'm missing? So this is like a standard response that I do. The second is I ask how soon does the decision need to be made? How, you know, how soon do you need to solve this problem? So these are maybe the two stock phrases around what I right. what I ask for.
1: What's the best way to give you feedback about what you do?
5: We actually, this is like a, again, maybe a McKinsey thing, Rohan, right? I actually have a monthly feedback for every one of my direct reports. So we have a standard format. So is it like a one-to-one? One-to-one one feedback. And... So I actually set up with all you know, all, I mean, not just to eat, I think maybe for about 15 people, I have regular feedback sessions, frequency of once a month or once a quarter, but I get, I get feedback. And we have a standard format for feedback. So you have to sort of say uh, something developmental. You can't just say, oh, you're great. Right. So I think that part works. By the way, you know, you asked me on the interview thing, right? That's right. Actually, the interview thing is in one hour, you can never find out. The biggest thing about actually attracting successful people, the biggest thing about getting the right people in your organization is reference checks. It's 80%. So I do, all, I do at least five reference checks and I won't get off the phone till they say something developmental about the person because otherwise they're just giving me random stuff.
1: All right. To listen to the full conversation with Anand, head over to episode five in the show notes. Phew, that was quite the whirlwind. I hope I managed to interest you in at least a few of these incredible conversations, if not all of them. Tell us what you thought of today's format. Did you like it? No? What other features would you like from First Principles or The Ken? Write to me at podcasts at theken.com. And if you haven't already rated us on your favorite podcast platform, why is that? I would truly appreciate your rating, no matter what it is. Lastly, a big thanks to my colleagues Rajiv C and our resident sound engineer for helping put together this special episode across nearly eight hours of conversations. See you the next time with a new conversation with another accomplished founder. Till then, this is me Rohan, thanking you for listening and for your support.